If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, the book of Romans there in the New Testament, we're in chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 8. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. If you are new to us, we're thankful that you're here with us today. We have been working through the book of Romans for a good while now, and we find ourselves today in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Let me read, beginning in verse 3, down to verse 8. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to the Church of Rome. He writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words inspired by your spirit. Father, would you open our eyes and ears and hearts now to receive them that we might be changed and further conformed to the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. One of the tragedies of the Christian church today is the idea that faith is something that is a private matter and somehow disconnected from all the other areas of life. Seems like there is a popular version of Christianity today that continues to be the case. A popular version of Christianity that is a private matter and a faith that seems to cost us nothing and seems to have little impact on our life. We think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we think about a gospel that we have seen in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, a gospel that saves us. And now as we make our way into chapter 12, we find that this same gospel is a gospel that shapes us, that transforms us, it changes us, it makes us new, and it gives us a new identity. And so to say that Christianity cost us nothing and has little impact in our lives and is somehow a private affair disconnected from all the other areas of life is not the gospel at all. One of the things that Paul is going to show us as we continue to make our way through the rest of this letter is he's going to show us just how much our lives are indeed impacted by the grace of God. And the very place he begins here in chapter 12, as he kind of makes that shift, he makes the transition from explaining the depths and beauties and mystery of the gospel in the first 11 chapters now to show how that same gospel impacts us in the remaining chapters. What he does is he begins here by looking at how the gospel actually places us in a community. Places us in a community. And when you think about that, We have to work extremely hard 
in this world to live truly isolated lives. Now, I consider myself an introvert, trying to grow out of that over time. May, may, may the Lord help me to continue to grow out of that, although there are some strengths to being an introvert. You don't get yourself in near as much trouble, right? Maybe not. But you have to work extremely hard, even as an introvert, to live a truly isolated life. I mean, it's work. And I think that is the case because we were created to live in community together. Just think about your life. Think, you don't have to think about the church right now. Just think about life in general. You are born, and I know there are exceptions to this, and there are um, uh, specifics that often inform our own set of circumstances, but generally speaking, this is the case. We are born into a family, a community of people where we have relatives. We are oftentimes, as a young youngster and all the way through high school and even into college, we go to a school, and you don't go to school typically by yourself. You play on some kind of sports team or part of some kind of drama team or something like that, you're part of a group. When you go to work, you have co-workers, right? Many of us live in neighborhoods where there are people that live around us. We live in a community, right? a local community. So even if you don't live with someone right beside you, you live in an environment where there are people around. Right? Just drive up and down 235 Monday through Friday, you'll see them. And then certainly the local church. You know, the, the distinction of the church community is set apart, is, is something that we need to see because the church is set apart from all other communities. It's different. It's different because of the source of our community and the extent of our community. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that brings us together through the gospel and this community doesn't have an expiration date. You've heard me say before, we are going to be together in some capacity forever. You can move away from a local community to another community. You can see your family less and less. You can, you can change jobs. You can change neighborhoods. You can move to another city or another area. You can do all kinds of different things to change your community, but the community of the local church is distinct in that its source is in the gospel and its extent, the, the fact that it lasts forever. So when we think about all that we have in Christ, in the gospel, we think about being saved as individuals, but saved to be part of a community. And what we're going to find here, as Paul continues now uh, unpacking the implications of the gospel we're going to see how he first begins to speak of how this community, this, this gospel-shaped community is described here. Notice, if you go back to verses 1 and 2, we looked at these two verses last week. I just want you to get this because our tendency, we have to say this often because I do this. Our tendency when we read the Bible is we will read the Bible and we will think it's speaking just to me as an individual. And we sometimes forget that that God has inspired the scriptures. In, in this case, Paul is writing to the church at Rome. He's writing to a community. 
And so even when he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Bodies in the plural, living sacrifice in the singular. I didn't unpack this last week because I wanted to share more about this week. He is actually saying to the church, you church are to be a living sacrifice to the Lord. He is addressing this in corporate terms. So yes, as individual believers, we are to be a living sacrifice, but that is also true as a community of believers. And so our main point today, as we see this unfold a little bit more, our main, our main point from this passage is simply this, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ creates a community that is marked by both humility and service. If I was to summarize verses 3 through 8, the passage I just read a few moments ago, it, it's, it's that. The gospel, chapters 1 through 11, creates a community that is marked, that is characterized both by humility and by service. And Paul then gives us two exhortations here that, that describe that further. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Two truths that come from this text Simply put, and here they are, you need to see yourself rightly and you need to use your gifts faithfully. As someone who's been saved by the grace of God, placed in a community of faith, you need to see yourself correctly, you need to see yourself in a proper light with sober judgment, he says, and you need to exercise your gifts faithfully. That's what you, brothers and sisters, have been called to do and to be. So let's begin here with the first observation, how we need to see ourselves rightly. One of the things that we will fight against until the day we die, until the day we see Jesus, is the sin of pride. Hence Paul's exhortation here for us to not think more highly of ourselves. Notice what he says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but Think with sober judgment. Paul understood that one of the great temptations of the human heart and tendencies that we have is to think highly of ourselves. When you compare yourself to other people, you typically come out better. The gospel changes that. It it gives us a different perspective. Instead, he's telling us we need to actually assess ourselves by a true and objective standard. Now, before we get to that standard, why is it that Paul comes out so hard here against pride? One of the very first things he says as an implication of the gospel is that we see ourselves in a proper light. He knows that pride is the great destroyer of gospel community. He knows that Christians have been saved out of bondage of sin into righteousness and placed within a community, and he knows that one of the things that will destroy a community quicker than anything is the reality and existence of pride. Pride undermines the gospel. The gospel says, lay down your life for others. Pride says, you're more valuable than others. You think about the gospel, the gospel says love one another, and pride says love yourself. 
The gospel says, look not to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. Pride says, make sure your interests are considered first. We could go on and on and see the contrast between what the gospel produces and what selfish ambition and pride produce in the life of the believer. Jonathan Edwards, a great preacher, said he called pride the worst viper that is in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. His pride undermines our peace with God. But it also undermines our peace with one another and can ultimately divide fellow Christians. Human pride is no small matter. It's a massive thing that affects all of us to some degree. All of us have pride. It's just a matter of how it manifests itself in our lives and if whether or not we're fighting hard against it and seeking to be humble. So Paul here, he he wants the church to see that the gospel fashions us and creates in us a desire, a newfound desire to not be the most important person in the room. Rather, we understand we've been placed in a community of believers where we are called to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but to think with sober judgment, with sound reason. And then Paul gives us two reminders here, here that help us deal with pride. So if we're going to see ourselves rightly, if we're going to see ourselves in a correct way, with sober judgment, we need to compare ourselves to a proper standard. And that's the first thing that we see here is he reminds us how to deal with this pride. He says, first of all, remember, you have received grace. You need to see yourself in view of the grace of God. Notice in verse 3, he says, as he's writing to them, for by the grace given to me, I say to you. Paul's even out of the box. He, He understands that that his responsibility as an apostle here to communicate truth to these brothers and sisters in Rome, he knows that his calling has been a calling motivated, compelled, fashioned by grace. But you keep reading. He goes on in verse 3, he says, to think of yourself with sober judgment. And then he gives the standard by which we are to think. He says, according to the measure of faith, that God has assigned. Do you see that there? It says, by the grace given to me, I say to all of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, there's been a lot, quite a bit said about what this phrase, measure of faith, means. And there's been faithful, godly believers that have understood it to mean some different things. Some say that he's referring to here a measure of faith as what it seems, a quantity of faith, that some have differing levels of faith than others. And certainly there's some precedent for that. Even in this letter, we're going to get to, those, especially in Romans 14, about how are those who are weak in faith versus those who are strong in faith. So some would say he's just talking about the measure, the level, the quantity of faith one has. Others would say it's more of a standard, the kind of faith by which people are saved. We could just summarize it by saying it's a shorthand for the gospel here. And others would say it's it's more of a stewardship that we have. The, The context informs us, and so we would say that this measure of faith that God has given us so that we can exercise our gifts appropriately. What he's saying here is that if you want to measure yourself right, 
If you want to think with sober judgment, if you want to get a true assessment of yourselves, let faith be the measure. Look away from yourself and look to Christ. I think it's a, it's, it's, I don't know that we can articulate the, the measure of faith as being one of these or the other. I think there's a little element of truth to all of them. In essence, what we're seeing here is that the faith we, we, we receive, it's the faith that we receive to both live and to minister to others. Faith, we know, is a gift of God. And this gift of faith is what we exercise when we believe the gospel, and it's also a faith we exercise in using our spiritual gift. So when he says here this allotment of faith or this measure of faith, I believe it's referring certainly to the gospel, but also the gospel's implications as we seek to live out our lives as faithful Christians. Again, we could just simply say that if you want to measure yourself right, see yourself in view of the gospel of grace. Remember who it is you are, redeemed by grace. It's a good name for a church. And mobilized, equipped for the gospel's sake. So think of yourself in light of the gospel, which also brings with it weighty responsibilities. You've been saved by grace and you are equipped by grace. So how does that help us with pride? That's what we're trying to answer. He's, he's saying don't be prideful, right? He, think of yourself with sober judgment, not more highly than you ought to. And the way that you go about this is according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Well, it helps us with pride because on the one hand, as those who've received grace, everything we have comes from God. We've not earned or deserved what we've been given in Christ. The fact that our sins have been forgiven, the fact that we've been redeemed, the fact that we've been given new life, the fact that we've been given a community, a family to, to live out life together with, the fact that we have all these wonderful things given to us by grace, the fact that we have one day awaiting us a glorious inheritance that's kept for us in heaven by the Lord, all of this is a testimony to God's goodness and kindness to us, not anything that we have done to earn or merit these things. Things. It's not as if God is somehow keeping the checklist and saying, okay, they've done this well this week, they're going to get a little bit more. They've done this well this week, they're going to get more. Okay, they, they kind of did poorly this week, I'm going to take away. That's not grace. So on the one hand, we are a people who have received everything that we've received, it's been given to us by the generous kindness of God. But on the other hand, I think it helps us realize that we aren't worthless. God has extended grace to us because he deeply cares for us. He created you in his image, and he has pursued you by his grace, and he has called you as an adopted son and daughter of the king. To some extent, we all struggle with fully embracing these realities, but God's gift of grace is imperative to, fight, to our fight against pride Friends, listen, the more we relish the grace of God in our lives, the more that we value what God has given us, the less pride will grow in our hearts. When we find ourselves struggling with pride, it's probably because we have taken our gaze off of grace. So first of all, the first way that we fight against pride is to be, to be reminded that we've received grace, but two, to be reminded that you belong to the body. 
Notice he says in verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. You see, one of Paul's goals here is to caution us against taking too much of an individualistic approach to our transformation. Listen, God never saved you to attend church. He saved you to be the church. If you think that somehow salvation means I have to go to church, you've misunderstood. Salvation means that you are part of the church, you are part of the body, which does involve being together and attending. I think we have such a restrictive view sometimes of, of what it means to be Christians. Paul uses the image here of a human body, which I think serves as a wonderful illustration of what all this means, how we're called to be the church. Several things that Paul brings out here in verses 4 and 5. Notice, first of all, he, he highlights this aspect of unity. He says, for as in one body. See that there? For as in one body, there's one body, there's not multiple bodies, there's not different kinds of bodies, there's one body, there's one church. There is a unity here that is essential. In verse 5, he refers to the one body in Christ. You know, there are many things that churches oftentimes, unfortunately, seek to unify around. But the only true unifier is Jesus. We can try to build a church around a particular group of people, maybe economically or socially or ethnically or politically, a particular ministry or a leadership personality, but friends, all of that would actually be in vain and contrary to the gospel. We need to understand that our unity is in Christ, and that's why when we come together with a backgrounds that are so, with our, all of our backgrounds that are so different, that we can be one in Christ because the gospel brings us together. The Bible says our unity is found in the gospel, and so there's this oneness, this sense of oneness that we have, for as in one body we have many members. So there is unity, but number two, there is diversity. Many members. One body, many members. And these members, he says, do not all have the same function. Though many, one body. Individually, members of one another. So you see this this unity in the midst of diversity here. It's a beautiful picture. The truth about the human body, as he uses that as an image, is that, that we're not one big ear. Praise God for that, right? We would look kind of silly hopping around as an ear. We're not a foot. I don't like feet, right? Thank the Lord, we're not all feet. God created feet, okay? Just, just so we get that clear. All right, they're, they're good. Friends, we are a body made up of feet and hands and fingers and eyes and head and arms and legs and backs and all kinds of parts. And none of these parts, although you may have more than one, none of these parts are the same. Each are different, and yet this incredible diversity serves to unify the body. Relating this to the church then means that we have people 
from different walks of life. We have different ethnicities. We have different genders. We have different ages. We have different gifts. And all of these things are a beautiful testimony to the to the beautiful work of God and how he designed us to be. And he called us to use these differences to appropriately serve the unity of the church. If you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you would see how Paul unpacks this so much more clearly as he expounds on this image of the body. In chapter 12, I want to read, this is 1 Corinthians, the next, book's over, the next book over from Romans in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he just goes into very vivid detail of what this looks like, especially beginning in verse 14. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, get this, you've checked out, check back in. Here's key. As it is, God arranged. Back in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, the measure of faith that God has assigned. Here, God arranges the members. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be the weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Friends, this is what God has done. When you begin to see yourself for who you are, when you're thinking of yourself with sober judgment, one of the things you need to be reminded of is that God has saved you. You didn't save you. God saved you. He equipped you. And he placed you into a body as he determined. This is a sovereign thing. This is a sovereign work of God where he saves and he places, he arranges people within the body as he determines so that his purposes will prevail. You're not here by an accident, friend. To get super practical, if you were here and you're a member of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, God did that. God placed you. God put purpose in you and he designed you and he gifted you and he equips you to be here to serve the people around you and for the community to be blessed by our unity together. So you have unity, you have diversity, but then there's this idea of interdependence. So we have for his one body, many members. And then notice what he says back in Romans 12. He says, 
So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Individually members of one another. This, this idea becomes, that comes from this, this passage is this idea of, of mutually edifying relationships. As I said earlier, one of Paul's aims here as he's writing and unpacking the, the practical implications of the gospel is to show us how much we actually need each other. The Christian faith is a communal faith. God saves us into a body. He adopts us into a family. So the gospel then establishes an interdependent relationship with other believers. All the different pieces and parts of the body are designed to work in concert together, complementing the other parts so that the body functions as it was designed to function. That's what happens with our human bodies and so too the church. All the different parts of the body of Christ ought to be working then together for the benefit of the other parts so the body can fulfill its purpose. Let me just ask you this question. This question really is more for those who are here as members. If I were to ask you why you are here today, how would you answer that question? Don't answer it out loud, just how would you answer that? Why are you here today? Well, the alarm clock actually went off. Or what, what's your answer? Just think about it. Write it down. Think about it. What, why are you here today? Part of your answer needs to be because of the people that are here. Just look around you. You have the answer. We approach church in, in such a consumeristic mindset today. What does the church have for me? How can the church meet my needs? How can the church do this for me, 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 me? When God has saved you and he has placed you into a family so that you can be part of what God is doing among the body. You are here, one of the reasons you're here today is because of the person that's sitting behind you or in front of you or beside you. That's one of the reasons you're here. There's this interdependence. We're individually members of one another. So that's why merely attending church, I would say, is not gospel obedience. Friend, you were made for much more than that. So simply sliding in for the service and bumping out when it's over is not gospel Christianity. And this isn't a movie or a concert you come to attend. This is the bride of Christ for whom he bled and died. This is the, the body of believers, flawed as we are. Which God has placed you to be a blessing to them and they to you. You say, well, this is messed up here. This is part of the reason I struggle here. Well, you're here to help. Help us. And friend, you may just be coming and you may be just thinking, well, this is, it's a good place to hang out on Sunday for an hour, like the coffee. 
We worked hard on our coffee. And you can go get better coffee somewhere else, as much as I love our hospitality folks. You won't get it for free, though. This is not about the coffee. This is not about just coming in and checking in just to kind of hang out for an hour or so. So it's actually an hour and a half, Adam. We never get in and out in an hour. And this is the body of Christ, and you are part of it. That's something that will help you think soberly. You've been saved by grace, and you're part of the body of Christ. Number two, and I'll move quickly, use your gift faithfully. So you need to see yourself rightly. You need to see yourself in a, in a right fashion that you've been redeemed by grace and that you have been placed into a body to be part of this diverse unity of interdependent relationships. But we're also called here to use our gift faithfully. You see verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, same grace given to Paul in verse 3 is now the same grace that he's given to us, same measure of faith. Notice what he says. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. Friends, one of the ways that you express your unity and your interdependence upon one another is to use your spiritual gifts. Again, spiritual gifts were never intended to be something you use just for you. Just to find some kind of self-fulfillment. It's for the edification of the body and the glory of God. Spiritual gifts are those things that God in his wisdom give us so that we can use and exercise for the benefit of others. Talents and things that we can do ways that we serve, that we can edify the body and bring strength to the body of Christ for its good and for God's glory. He says, having gifts that differ then, according to the grace given to us, let us use them. You know, spiritual gifts, those things that God has given us to, to use, they're designed not to be kept on standby, but to use. Again, we see ourselves primarily as providers, not consumers. I love what's written in the book, The Compelling Community, by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop. They wrote there, spiritual consumers commit to a congregation to the extent that commitment benefits them. Spiritual providers commit because they benefit, because of the benefit they've already received in Christ. The big difference. Spiritual providers commit because of the benefit they've already received. They've been saved by grace. You notice here that Paul lists seven particular gifts. Prophecy and service and teaching and exhortation or encouragement, uh, contributing, leading, doing acts of mercy. We know there are other lists in the New Testament. You can go to 1 Peter chapter 4 or 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and you can find similar gifts and others. And we know these are not exhaustive lists. So even if you compile them all and come out with the total list of gifts that the New Testament give us, we know that these are merely representative lists, types of gifts that God does give his people. They're not exhaustive. They're representative kind of lists. 
We're not given a, an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts or, or even these lists do not, do not exist in the Bible to, serially, to merely say, okay, which one of these do I have? And it's also important to say that just because you may not have a particular gifting in an area, that doesn't mean that you're absolved from all responsibility in that area. Even as you look at the list here, you can see how they bleed over even into each other. For example, if you have the gift of exhortation, don't think that you're not responsible somehow to serve or contribute or be merciful. Sometimes I think we overemphasize the pursuit of particular gifts in a way that can foster selfishness and pride. The very thing that Paul's arguing against here, right? There are no sharp boundaries here. Again, some of these merge well into others, and some people will have a variety of different kinds of gifts in different seasons of their life even. And so we need to see that, and, and he's just using this here primarily to make a greater point. The greater point that he's seeking to make, if you see it in the text, he says, let us use them. His point here is on how we use them and not necessarily on what they are. You see that? If prophecy, in proportion of our faith. If serving or teaching, in those ways. If generosity, or excuse me, in, in, if the one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. His focus here is on how we use our gifts, not so much on what are the gifts. The sampling list here is, I think, helpful. Whatever gift you have, use it in the way that it was intended to be used. First of all, use it and then use it in the way that God has intended. That's his point. So if prophecy, in proportion of earth, what's prophecy? There's a lot of people debate on what that means. I think it's simply spirit-guided instruction about something we'd normally not have information about that leads to the strengthening of someone's faith. It's found in line with Scripture. If serving, it can mean a whole bunch of different things, right? Serving, in our serving, devote yourself to this. If teaching, in our teaching. If exhortation or encouragement, if providing encouragement to someone, in that encouragement. The one who contributes. See, so you could latch on to, I don't have the gift of, I don't have the spiritual gift of contributing. How convenient for a building program coming up, right? Pastor, I don't have that gift. Again, if you were to take this as a literal, I've got one of these and not the other, you, would, you, could, you could bow out of that. The one who leads with zeal, acts of mercy with compassion. So again, his point, his emphasis here is on how you do this. Whatever gifts you have, use them well for the right purposes. Friends, you can give, but you can give begrudgingly. You can lead, but you can also do so on a power trip. You can serve, but be resentful in your serving. What would this look like at RGBC? Here are some examples. But the one who serves, do so in our serving. May the Lord raise up those who see more and more needs in the life and ministry of this church. And may he move them towards always thinking, all of us, may, may the Lord move all of us in some way to think about the needs that are present here. How can I help? What ministry can I help support? What family can I love on? What can I do to, to make the life of this church better? Well, for one, we have 
27 little ones that need attention in the nursery every six weeks. That would be helpful. Teaching. When I hear this, my desire and prayer is then to see the Lord raise up a great army of faithful Bible teachers here at Redeeming Grace, both men and women who love the Word, who give themselves to faithful study, and are able to give themselves over to faithfully teaching others. The one who contributes. We do have a generous congregation, but there's always room to grow in our generosity. And this is not something that calls us to see how much we can get by with, but how much we can sacrifice for and to do so with joy. The one who leads, may the Lord give us passionate, devoted, godly elders and deacons and ministry leaders. May the Lord keep us from approaching ministry in some kind of lazy, sluggish manner. These are ways you can see these fleshed out and even ways that you can pray for the ministry here at Redeeming Grace. Friends, the Lord is just as concerned with how we use our gift as he is with whether or not we know our gift. One of the ways that you contribute to the unity of the church, listen, one of the ways that you can contribute to the unity of the local church is by using your spiritual gift. But the the opposite is also true. When you're not using your spiritual gift, you're actually contributing to the division of the church. Because when you're not using the gifts God has given you to serve this body and his glory, other people have to step in and take up the slack that God has arranged you here for. And that can create tension and overwork people that are overworked, and that can create unnecessary burdens which actually fosters division. And so to not use your spiritual gift in the life of the local church is actually seeking to help divide it. When you aren't serving others, division is right at the door. You know, I think one of the things we take away from this passage is, is quite clear. It's quite clear. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace of God in us, let us use them. Friend, if you're a member of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, if you're a member of our church, you have an obligation, a responsibility, a joyful one, to utilize your spiritual gift for the good and edification of this church and for the glory and praise of God. Now, there's typically a mixed bag of people present in any given church. First of all, there are Christians who, don't, who, who know their gifts. They're affirmed by the leadership in those gifts, and they're using those gifts well. Praise God for people who know that and who are engaged in ministry using their gifts. There are Christians then who also, also exist who don't know exactly how they're gifted, but they want to do more to serve the church. They just need encouragement and help. Maybe they're not plugged in like they want to be, but it's, they need help in figuring that out. Then there's another group, Christians who know their gift, but they don't really feel like they're utilizing the, the gift like they desire or like they should. And then there are those who really don't care. They don't care if they have a gift, and they don't care to use it. And I want to commend the first group, because we have many of you here. Many of you, faithful servants here at Redeeming Grace, many of your gifts are evident 
And listen, many of the gifts that we have here in this church are often taken for granted. And that is to my shame, it's to our shame. But we are thankful that we have an army of servants here. So I really want to focus briefly here as we wrap this up on on the two groups in the middle. Those who are unsure of, of your gift but want to serve. What do you do? Well, there are many things you can do. Obviously, as you're praying, these are some other things that you can, you can also think through. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse, or chapter 14, when you read those passages about spiritual gifts, one of the things that you see there is that he who earnestly desires these gifts. First of all, you have to have a desire, a holy longing to use the gifts. And another thing you can, you can do is to know yourself. If God has gifted you, and he's commanded you to serve in the church, do you think he would make it difficult for you to see how you're gifted? As if it's some kind of code you have to break. (laughs) I mean, I think spiritual gift inventories can be helpful. Not necessary, though. It can be helpful, help you figure things out, especially if you're one of those thinkers. Use it if it'll help help you evaluate. But, But friend, you know, it's not rocket science. Just know yourself. What are some of the desires and and abilities that you have, and how can you use those in a godly way to encourage others? Likely, your spiritual gift is somewhere in that. Ask others. Ask other people around you. Hey, what do you see in me that, that, how do you see me serving in the body of Christ? What are some things you see in me that might be a blessing to others? And then one big one is, is get involved. Don't wait. Don't wait to get involved until after you figure out your gift. But if you're uncertain of where it is you're gifted truly, serve somewhere. And as you're serving, those gifts will be made clear. Relationships will be established. Needs will be evident. And your heart will be pursuing those things. Friends, we're here to help you. If, you. if you're unsure, just ask us, any of the elders, you, ask us where can you plug in and how can we help you see where you're gifted. Maybe you're here and you know, you know where you're gifted and you just feel like for whatever reason, you're not utilizing your gifts like you desire or should. Again, talk to us. We're here to help mobilize people. We, Ephesians 4, we're here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to unleash you to serve. Help us to do that. There are many other things we could say in in this light, but just, again, friends, utilize your spiritual gifts. Let us use them, it says in verse 6, and how you use them does make a difference. Listen, there are always ministry needs in this church. Always. Don't ever think for a minute that everything is filled. That's not true. We can always use people serving in ways in this church. Did some numbers the other day, and we have approximately, if you factor in those who've recently moved, we have about 204 members, more than that that attend, but we have 204 members. And of those 204 members, approximately 62% serve in a regular ministry of some form or another. Some of those are on double and triple duty. We have over 60% members that are serving, but get this. Approximately 30% of our membership are doing nothing. Now, some of that is hard to quantify because it's hard to quantify uh, 
ongoing discipling and life-on-life ministry. Almost 60 active and able members who are here, as far as we can tell, are not plugged into any kind of active ministry in the local church. Friends, just hear Romans 12. You've been placed in a body and having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use those gifts. There's a number of our folks that are either away at college or physically limited, and we get that, and we, we know that. We're not necessarily talking about those folks that can't. Most of the folks that can't desperately want to do more. We're talking about those that can but aren't. Another thing that we can be doing well is celebrating and affirming each other's gifts. When, when's the last time you've pointed out a gift in someone else and thanked them? When have you thanked someone for serving this body? I'm not talking about me. Don't do that coming out and say, oh, he's told me to do it and I'm going to do it. I'm talking about somebody else in this church. When you've acknowledged what they've done, how they've been gifted, and you've gone to them and genuinely thanked them for how they edify the body by using their spiritual gift. Friend, my prayer is that we would all be growing in our gifts and utilizing our gifts for the good of one another and for God's glory. The gospel creates a community that is marked by humility and service. Just to ask you, do those traits mark us as a church? Are we humble? Are we faithful? Are you humble? Are you faithful? The call of this text is for each of us to think soberly about our presence in the body of Christ. And if we're going to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, we must be a people that are willing to think of ourselves in view of the gospel and as part of the body so that we would be faithful servants, people willing to invest in the life of the body. That's what we've called to be. That's what we've been called to be and that's what we've been called to do. So let us do it well. For God's glory. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this word and we thank you for this reminder of what you've called us to be as your people. Lord, you've called us to be within a body and you've called us to serve. There's no exemptions here, Lord. There's no um, exemption to, to, for us to slide out of that, Lord, that we've all been called to, to do something and to do it well and and to do it with right motives, and Lord, to do it faithfully for your glory and for your kingdom purposes. Father, it's my prayer today that you would stir each of our hearts and help us to be faithful, help us to be diligent in this calling that you've given us, and help us to honor you as we seek to do so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.